As you probably can tell already by the uh, service order, we as a church uh, take the Word of God very seriously. We believe it to be inerrant and infallible, to be inspired in every sense, and the only uh, way for us to guide and understand our lives. And so as part of that, um, as a necessary uh, corollary of that reality that we take the Bible so seriously, we also take preaching very seriously and exhortation uh, very seriously. So it is quite a long process, um, quite a difficult process to become a minister in our denomination. Uh, there is a lot of education. There are exams on multiple levels. Uh, when you finish seminary, uh, you really haven't finished anything. <laughs> um, in a sense, you still have uh, to go through presbytery. Um, by the time you've done the MDiv uh, program, which is what most of our ministers do, you have the equivalent of three to four master's degrees in your subject, about 115 to 110 uh, master's level credits in theology, uh, church history, and uh, various other subjects related to being a pastor. So it's quite a process. It, it's um, quite daunting, actually. There are also several stages of that for us as a church. Coming under care is the first stage where a presbytery and a church identify a young man as a possible candidate for ministry. And then there's uh, licensure, where that person is licensed to preach within the presbytery. And then finally, of course, ordination. So there's quite a, a process. I won't get into all of it um, tonight. But what I do want to impress upon you is the reason for that process. It's not to make Nathaniel's life difficult. <laughs> it was not to make my life difficult. It comes from a high view of God's word. If God's word is everything we just sung, if it's the only way for us to know how to structure our lives, if it's the only source that we can go to to understand what the church is supposed to be, then whoever preaches it, regularly preaches it, needs to be prepared. And there needs to be a deep seriousness in that preparation. And so Nathaniel is in that process. He's in the very beginning of that process. And part of that process is that he has this opportunity this evening to exhort. And you have the privilege of being the people to hear him do this for the first time. Uh, this is a special moment uh, for us as a church. Um, it's a special moment for him and for his family. I remember uh, first coming here and uh, playing with Nathaniel in the basement. He was a little boy. And we played swords. And we dueled all the time in his basement. And I was a new young minister getting to know the families of the church and the children of the church. And it's hard to imagine that we're standing here now and I'm about to invite him up into the pulpit. Uh, time has gone so fast. So it's a, it's a great moment for our church. It's also a big moment for him as he seeks for the first time really to exhort from God's word. So please be in prayer for him even as you listen and encourage him afterwards. Give him good, uh, loving encouragement. Uh, maybe some thoughtful, kind criticism if necessary. We need that when we're young ministers or training for ministry and starting out. So uh, give all those things to him. I know that you will. So with that introduction, Nathaniel, if you'll come forward and exhort from God's word. Well, good evening. Before I begin, I'd like to thank the session for giving me this opportunity. Uh, Paul tells Timothy 
to test his gifts, and that's what I'm able to do, so I'm very blessed to have this opportunity. I also want to thank you, the congregation, for all of your support, your prayers, your encouragements over the past several months. It's a wonderful reminder to me of the blessing that it is to be in a local church body, and I'm, I thank God for each of you. If you would, please turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy 3. In a moment, we'll be reading from chapter 3, verse 10, to chapter 4, verse 5. Tonight, I plan on sharing with you some of what I have learned this semester at Westminster. I'll be drawing specifically from my systematic theology course, where we have spent the past semester discussing the nature of Scripture, what it is, what it means for us, what its purpose is. I hope that tonight you come away with a renewed sense of wonder and thanks to God that he has chosen to speak to us through his word and through his son. If you leave tonight thinking, Nathaniel just gave me a lecture on how I need to read my Bible more often, then you've missed the point, or I've done a bad job. We should be reading our Bibles much more often, but tonight I want to explore why that is by reminding us what we actually believe about scripture. This passage in 2 Timothy is acknowledged as one of the most critical passages to a biblical understanding of the nature of Scripture. So with that brief introduction, please stand for the reading of God's all-sufficient word. This is 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am not sufficient to teach your word tonight, and we are not able in and of ourselves to hear what you have to teach us. But we believe, as we sung tonight, that by grace, we are heirs of heaven, and by grace, you open our hearts and you teach us through your Holy Spirit. 
Bless us now with your spirit. Give me the words to speak. Give us the ears to hear. And may we be blessed with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. To give you a brief overview for the context of this passage, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter to Timothy, and the section that we just read is one of his final written instructions to Timothy before Paul dies. If you look a few verses down, you can see that Paul is aware that he will soon leave this life. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. What would you want to tell your successor if you knew that you were about to die? Recall that Paul views Timothy as his own spiritual child. What would you want your last words to your children to be? For Paul, he knew that Timothy would face some challenging times ahead. For example, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. In light of this difficulty... Paul's final written advice to Timothy is to rely completely on the word of God. This is no accident, and it is this instruction from Paul that we will be studying tonight. As you might imagine, there are several different ways that we can talk about scripture. For instance, we believe that scripture is inspired. We believe that scripture is profitable, and we believe that it is clear. All of these aspects of scripture are worthy of study, And all of these aspects of scripture are defended by Paul in this text. For our purposes tonight, though, I have chosen three specific headings that we will use to describe the nature of scripture. First, we will look at the authority of scripture. Second, the necessity of scripture. And third, the sufficiency of scripture. The authority, necessity, and sufficiency of scripture. First, scripture is authoritative. Perhaps like me, you enjoy spending time in a bookstore. Maybe you enjoy reading, or maybe it's just the quiet atmosphere. When I go into a bookstore, my siblings can tell you, I enjoy wandering around and looking at all the different book covers. There are so many shapes, sizes, and colors. It's just, I love it. It's amazing. At some point when you're looking at a a bookshelf, a specific book will catch your eye. Maybe it was the cover, or maybe it was the title of the book. Or perhaps it was the name of the author themselves that caught your attention. When we say that scripture is authoritative, we are saying something about the author of scripture. Specifically, we are thinking about the Bible's divine authorship. Look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The phrase breathed out by God in English is actually one word in the Greek, the word theopneustos. If you split that word into its two roots, you can hear theo, or theos, the Greek word for God, and pneustos, from which we get our English word pneumonia. It has to do with lungs, with breathing. So the term used here literally means God breathed. In other words, all scripture flows directly from God, and he has given it to us. Now, we believe that the Bible was written by men, but we believe that those men were, as Peter describes it, carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the authority of the Bible does not come from the human authors, but from God himself. The human authors of the Bible include Matthew, an extortionist, 
Peter a traitor, and Paul a blasphemer. Even after they were saved, these men had no more authority in and of themselves than you or I. Their authority was granted to them by God through his Holy Spirit. And so when they spoke in scripture, they spoke with God's authority. In other words, the source of scripture is not the human authors, but rather the God who breathed life into all things and who reigns over all human destiny. He is the author of this holy book. Of course, this passage in 2 Timothy is not the only place where we learn that, of God's authorship of scripture. I already mentioned 2 Peter 1, where Peter says that the human authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the Bible. In the Old Testament, we are told explicitly that God himself writes the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments are directly written with his authority. There are also countless examples of prophets using the phrase, thus says the Lord, which marked direct speech from God. When the prophets use this phrase, they're reminding their hearers and us that the message they are proclaiming is not their own. It is God's message. And because it is God's message, it is a true message. Thus, in Deuteronomy 18, God warns that anyone who claims to be a prophet but makes a false prophecy, is a liar, and does not have the word of God in them. One final example comes from Mark 12, which you can turn to if you'd like. In this passage, Jesus is teaching in the temple about his divinity. He quotes from Psalm 10, Psalm 110, excuse me. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This passage is clearly focused on teaching that Jesus is the Son of God, but it is easy to miss another important statement that Jesus makes. Notice how he introduces the quotation in Mark 12, verse 36. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, and then Jesus quotes the verse. There are three interesting things about Jesus' statement here. First, he affirms that the Old Testament had both human and divine authors. David writes this psalm, but he does so under the guidance and the supervision of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, Jesus quotes the Old Testament as if it was prophetically authoritative. In other words, he clearly believed that David had prophesied his own coming. Thus, Jesus viewed the Old Testament as an authoritative book. Thirdly, notice how the crowd reacts positively in verse 37. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, you see the Jews get angry with him about all sorts of things. But here and in other places, the Jewish crowds and the Pharisees never disagree with Jesus, at least openly, that God's word should be their authority. So we see then that scripture is authoritative because it comes directly from the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament prophets, Jesus himself, and the apostles all believed that scripture finds its source in God. The Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes the authority of scripture like this. The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, 
who is truth itself and the author thereof. And therefore, scripture is to be received because it is the word of God. You see their argument. Because God is truth itself, everything that he says and everything that he does must be true. Thus, the word of God is and always will be authoritative for Christians. But scripture is not only authoritative, it is also necessary. Perhaps this sounds a bit obvious. Of course scripture is necessary. Well, fair enough. But slow down and think about this for a moment. What is scripture necessary for? Depending on how we answer this question, our view of scripture may differ drastically. Let me suggest that there are two primary ways that scripture is necessary for the Christian. First, scripture is necessary for nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, without scripture, we cannot have saving faith. Recall Pastor Trefskar's recent sermons on Romans 1. Paul teaches there that creation provides everyone with a general knowledge of God. All people know that God exists, that he is good, that he is powerful, and that we owe him our worship. Romans 1.19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And Psalm 19 expresses this same truth more poetically. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. When believers and unbelievers alike look at the sky on a clear night, or sit on the beach at sunset, they are confronted with who God is. His loving character and power is etched in every grain of sand. But while God's love and power is known generally to all men, it is only in scripture that we learn that love himself came down and died on the cross for our sins so that we might be reconciled to him. And it is only because this truth has been preserved in scripture that we are able to discern between error and truth. Look again at 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The natural question, then, is what is necessary for Timothy to defend the church against this deception? Well, Paul goes on in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So what does Timothy need for salvation and to defend the church against false doctrine? Paul says that Timothy needs scripture. He uses the phrase sacred writings to refer to the Old Testament, which was the only scripture that Timothy had at this point in history. This shows us the high view that, Tim that Paul held of the Old Testament. But Paul's argument applies to the New Testament as well. In fact, Peter makes this connection explicit in 2 Peter 3, where he argues that the letters of Paul are scripture in the same way that the Old Testament was scripture. The Bible that we have today, old and new, is able to bring salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul reinforces this argument for us in a famous passage in Romans 10, 
The context for this passage in Romans is Paul declaring that the gospel is able to save both Jews and Gentiles. In verse 13, Paul declares that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In verses 14 to 17 of Romans 10, Paul tells us why scripture is necessary for this salvation. Let me read those to you. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul could not be more clear. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Saving faith requires the word of God. And that word of Christ is nothing more or less than the good news of the gospel, which has been preserved for us in scripture. Creation, then, is only able to give man a general knowledge of God. Scripture alone is able to reveal God as man's redeemer. Scripture is not only necessary for salvation, though. If that were the case, then after we were saved, we would no longer have any need for Scripture. But we know that as Christians, we must rely on Scripture and the truths contained in Scripture constantly. In other words, Scripture is also necessary for our sanctification. This is most clearly seen in the high priestly prayer, which Pastor Trevskar also recently preached through in John 17. In the second section of the high priestly prayer, in verse 17, Jesus asks that the Father sanctify the apostles. Notice the method of sanctification that Jesus asks for. He says, Sanctify them, the apostles, in the truth. Your word is truth. You will recall that the Westminster Confession of Faith referred to God as truth itself. Here, Jesus applies the term truth to God's word. This is why the Reformers had such a high view of Scripture. They rightly believed that God's word was inextricably tied to God's character. You can see here the tight relationship between the authority and the necessity of Scripture. Because scripture is God's word, it has the power to sanctify his people and set them apart. And Jesus specifies that scripture was not only powerful in the lives of the apostles, but also in our lives. If you look a few verses down, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you see the connection here? Jesus prays for those who have been saved through the word, Romans 10, that they might be sanctified by the word, John 17. This is Jesus' prayer for you and for me. So scripture is not only authoritative for the Christian, it is also necessary for the Christian because the word of God alone is able to save and to sanctify us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, the word of God is sufficient. While the authority, necessity, and sufficiency of Scripture are all related to one another, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture is perhaps the clearest expression 
of the Reformed view of Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church believes in the authority and the necessity of Scripture, but they reject the sufficiency of Scripture. Charismatic and fundamentalist churches believe in the authority and necessity of Scripture, but they also often dismiss the sufficiency of Scripture. Before exploring these disagreements more fully, let me first give you a definition of the sufficiency of Scripture from Matthew Barrett, a contemporary theologian. He says this, The sufficiency of Scripture means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life in obedience to God and for his glory are given to us in the Scriptures. The sufficiency of Scripture means that all things necessary for salvation and for living the Christian life in obedience to God and for his glory are given to us in the Scriptures. In other words, this doctrine teaches that everything that a Christian needs to honor God is contained in Scripture. Paul makes this teaching clear in our passage tonight. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's hard to imagine Paul using stronger language than he does here. He gives Timothy a charge in the presence of Christ Jesus, the judge of all men. Paul is essentially saying, Timothy, I am about to leave this life. Pay attention to what I'm going to say to you and act on my instructions as the very commands of Christ. Well, what does Paul instruct Timothy to do? Paul tells him to preach and teach the word. Notice the variety of ways that Paul expects Timothy to use the word in his ministry. In addition to preaching, Timothy needs to be reproving, rebuking, exhorting, and teaching the Christians under his care. This is in addition to the instruction Paul gives in chapter 3, verse 16, where he tells Timothy to use scripture to teach, reprove, correct, and train himself, the man of God. And this reliance on scripture needs to be happening at all times. Paul tells Timothy to be ready in season and out of season. Well, why this reliance on scripture and why this urgency? Look at verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The reason, then, that Timothy must be constant in his reliance on and teaching of the word of God is that the church will be attacked by false doctrine. Notice how Paul describes the temptation to abandon the truth, itching ears. It is such a powerful description of the constant temptation that believers and unbelievers alike have to abandon the truth. Unbelievers are self-blinded to the truth, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, as Paul tells us in Romans. Believers, even though our eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit, still wage war with our sin in this life. The flesh is constantly trying to draw us away from the truth that we have been saved to to the lies that we have been saved from. Paul warns that the temptation to abandon the truth is so strong 
that people will not be satisfied by lying to themselves, but they will desire teachers to preach peace, peace, as Jeremiah describes it, when there is no peace. Now, as I mentioned before, many churches and denominations today reject the full sufficiency of Scripture. They believe that the Christian life is only complete when we add human experience or human reason to Scripture. In general, these Christians can be classified into two groups, what I'm calling the traditionalists and the individualists. The traditionalists are most clearly seen in the Roman Catholic Church. They believe that Scripture cannot be understood on its own, but must be interpreted by the Church and the Pope. They argue that Scripture and Church tradition are equally authoritative, and thus that Scripture alone is insufficient. It is important to note that the Roman Catholic Church does not only believe that church history is useful or important. We believe that. The Reformers were always looking to church history and ancient theologians to gain insight into God's word. Calvin, for instance, constantly quotes Augustine throughout his writings. The difference is that the Roman Catholic Church believes that the traditions of the church are as trustworthy as scripture itself. At our most recent college and career meeting, we were discussing this very issue of sufficiency and the Roman Catholic Church. And we noted then that the difference between the Reformed faith and Roman Catholicism really comes down to the sufficiency of scripture. While Reformed Christians believe that the traditions of sinful men cannot be our final authority, Roman Catholics essentially believe that there is safety in numbers. They believe that the Roman church as a whole is unable to make a mistake, so church tradition can be totally trusted. But look again at verse 3 of chapter 4. We are warned that false teachers can and will accumulate and grow in number. There is no safety in numbers. There is safety only in the truth of God's unchanging word. Partly in response to the problems with the Roman Catholic view, another group of Christians has gone to the opposite extreme. The individualists, as I'm calling them, of whom charismatic churches are an example, argue that tradition should be replaced with individual spiritual experiences. There are several types of individualists. Some, like charismatic Christians, think that God reveals new truths to them directly through the Holy Spirit. This is in contrast to the Reformed view that the Holy Spirit illumines and reminds us and teaches us of the truths that are already contained in Scripture. Others, other individualists who tend to be fundamentalist, think that the Christian life is nothing more than me and Jesus. They see no need for the church or for church discipline in direct opposition to the commands of Scripture. Still others believe that they should be guided by their feelings when making an important decision rather than a reliance on God's revealed will. If we're being honest, many of us can fall into this way of thinking without even realizing what we've done. We have replaced scripture with our own feelings or with our own reason. But we cannot serve two masters. Look at how Paul describes our sinful minds in this passage compared to the clear authority of Scripture. Such a reliance on ourselves, as individualists promote, is not honoring to God's word. 
If you think about it, traditionalists and individualists are really two sides of the same coin. Both believe in scripture plus ourselves. Neither believes that God has given the church all that she needs in his written and in his incarnate word. By adding to scripture, they reduce the importance of scripture. If you will, look with me at one more passage where Paul directly addresses this problem in Galatians 1. The context is similar to our passage in 2 Timothy. Paul once again is concerned that the word of God is being abandoned in the church. Reading from verse 6 of Galatians 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What is Paul's point here? He is arguing that everything, including the teaching of an apostle or an angel from heaven, must be judged by the standards of the gospel. Paul does not say that we need the traditions of the church or the judgment of individual Christians. For Paul, nothing more is needed for the Christian than to know the good news of Christ and him crucified. Paul, in other words, believed in sola scriptura, in scripture alone. That does not mean that Paul believed that Christianity was just me and Jesus. Scripture explicitly commands that we be in fellowship with other Christians and that we live under the authority of the church, as Pastor Fisher has been teaching us in recent weeks. But the reason that we do that, and this is important, the reason that we live under the authority of the church is because Scripture commands it, not because the church tells us to do so. In other words, we do not submit to our elders and deacons because they have authority outside of Scripture. That is the Roman Catholic position. Rather, we submit to our elders and deacons because they have authority given to them by Scripture. If we are seeking to honor God, then everything that we do, everyone who we trust, and every thought that we think must be placed under Scripture. So Scripture is not only the authoritative and necessary word of God. It is also sufficient for the Christian. We might say that we need scripture, the whole scripture, and nothing but the scripture to glorify God and enjoy him in this life. Drawing to a close then, we have seen how scripture, because it is God's word, has authority. When truth himself breathes out words, those words have authority in our lives. Scripture is also necessary. Without scripture, We can understand that God is holy and that we are sinful, but we have no hope for redemption. Through scripture, God reveals the good news of Jesus Christ to a broken and dying world. And finally, scripture is all sufficient. Everything that the Christian needs to live a blameless and upright life is contained within the very words of scripture. 
Scripture is the church's only sure defense against false doctrine. So what are we to do with this information? Now that we know what Scripture is, how are we to approach it? Three points of application for us tonight. First, if you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, listen to what God is saying through Paul in this passage. Whatever the reasons are in your mind for rejecting Christianity, however confidently you believe in them, they are false deceptions. I do not say that to be dismissive, because we are all, believers and unbelievers alike, constantly drawn away from the truth by our sin. But I do say this because this is what God says in his word. Instead of seeking to satisfy your itching ears with what the world is offering you, turn to God in humility. Turn to his word, because in his word you will find salvation, truth, and comfort for your soul. Second, for believers, do not underestimate the power of the preaching and teaching of the word of God. God's word, we are told, is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to bring the dead to life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul also taught us in Romans that the ordinary means of spreading this powerful word is through preaching. So let me suggest When we come to church and we are preparing ourselves to worship God, let us pray for our pastors. Pray that the Holy Spirit would use their preaching to spread his truth far and near. Pray that they would remain true to the Bible, that they would never succumb to itching ears, but would devote themselves to Holy Scripture. Pray that we would be receptive to the word as it is preached. Also, think about your own life. You may not be called to publicly preach the word, but we believe that all Christians are called to be lights in a dark world. Are we encouraging those around us with the truth that we have in scripture? Do we reprove our fellow believers with all patience when we see them sinning? And are we seeking to proclaim the word as it is preached and as we read it to the needy around us? Third, Do not be discouraged if you have trouble being consistent in your devotions. Often, in an effort to honor God by reading his word, we turn what should be a joyful refreshment for our souls into a mindless chore that quickly bores us. Satan is quite happy for this to happen. The devil knows the power of God's word. That is why he has been attacking it since the very beginning. If you're like me, you often especially struggle to read long genealogies or descriptions of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. What is the solution to these struggles? Well, earlier this evening, you heard Luke 24 read, the account of the road to Emmaus. The narrative is no doubt familiar to most of you, but hear it afresh tonight. Notice how Jesus comforts his downcast disciples in verse 25 of this passage. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures 
the things concerning himself. There's that phrase again, all scripture. All scripture is breathed out by God, and all scripture is about Christ. He is the word of God. In fact, just like scripture, Jesus Christ is authoritative. He is necessary, and he is sufficient for us. Those seemingly boring genealogies are actually testaments to God's covenant faithful to, faithfulness to his people. They remind us how long God has loved his people. And ultimately, those genealogies recount how the seed of the woman promised all the way back in Genesis 3 is produced. Or think of the intricate sacrificial system. Why is all of that detail recorded for us? Because it points us to the immense weight of our sins in the sight of a holy God and the necessity for a sacrifice to satisfy his perfect justice. Brothers and sisters, Christ is taught to us in every page of scripture. On every page of scripture, we see our Savior who died and rose again for undeserving sinners like you and like me. So next time, when we are struggling to read our Bibles, let us pray that God reminds us what we are reading and the great privilege that it is to read his word. Let us pray that we would more and more come to see our Redeemer in this authoritative, necessary, and sufficient book. And may we say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you do indeed have the words of eternal life, and out of your abundant grace, you have chosen to share them with us in this holy book. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that in them we see our Savior. Help us more and more to see him in every word that we read, and help us more and more to proclaim him to every person that we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, amen.